All right, I hope you got a handout as you were walking in today. And uh, I know that uh, you know that that means I mean business today. Because <laughs> we got some serious Bible verses. And uh, I'm excited to uh, bring God's word to you this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We've been going through the Gospel of John together. I want to bring some... Uh, much needed context to John chapter 6 today. I'm really excited about this, but I need you to put on your best Bible student hat today in order to, I think, see what is so important about the text. And so I'm going to try and teach you a couple things that I've learned along the way that I got refreshed on uh, through some commentaries this week, and hopefully it will uh, speak to you. Maybe you already know this, and it's just a good reminder. Maybe uh, it's something new to you about the Bible, and I'm excited to pass on something new about the Bible to you today, about what's really uh, the, the, the centralizing story of all of Scripture, truly, that we are going to track from Genesis through Exodus into the Gospel of John today. So before we get into all these verses, I'm going to read to us our, our, our central text this morning. It will be familiar to a lot of you, but uh, hear these words from John chapter 6, starting at verse 1, says this. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 basketfuls with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would add a blessing to your word. I pray that you would speak the truth that you want to speak from your holy scripture today. Lord, we thank you uh, that you've brought us to this place. We pray now that you'd help us to bring our full selves um, to hear from you, to understand you, uh, to know your word. And Lord, would you just encourage us in our discipleship to show us 
what we need to do in order to be better followers of your way. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so a key verse that I want to point out is uh, in this text, you may remember our background from last week that uh, we're, we, we just got out of a controversy about the Sabbath, right? That Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and he got in trouble for that and he had this conversation with the religious teachers of his time and they're having a conflict and at the end of this conflict we leave chapter 5 with Jesus saying that he's standing in the legacy of Moses, okay? And then we turn our page to chapter 6 and let me show you some things here, that the next two stories um, are intentionally chosen. Uh, one is intentionally chosen because it's speaking about bread, and the other is intentionally chosen because it's speaking about walking on water. Now, for those uh, who are educated in the Hebrew scriptures, the conversation about bread and then with this extra point made here in verse 6, I mean, excuse me, in verse 4 that says the Jewish Passover festival was near, this idea of Jesus being the new Moses would have come to the fore. And there would have been this thinking about bread and manna, like we just read, we heard Dave read, about uh, the story of who Moses is and what Moses did for the Hebrew people. And this is what the Passover festival is all about. Uh, the Jewish festivals were designed to teach the people of God their story. And it was the Passover festival that kicked off the new year for all of the people of God. And we also know that it was the very last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. And so the Passover has so many themes within it that run throughout all of scripture. And I'm just gonna try and unpack how the Passover and bread come through Genesis, Exodus, and into the Gospel of John to teach us about how Jesus is the new Moses and how the Exodus story is actually being told again in a new way in the Gospel of John. Okay, so to do that, I need to first just get to uh, some parallels here in Exodus and Genesis. Maybe you know about this. Maybe this is new to you. So track with me, stay with me on this about Exodus and Genesis, okay? So there are some uh, hyperlinks in the Bible. Now, I'm using that language because that's what we know as a, as a, a, a computer uh, literate culture. That like when you read Wikipedia, right, there may be a hyperlinked element where you, if you click on it, you could learn more about this thing. There's a, a part of the story, and then there's learn more about this part of the story. So the Bible is similarly hyperlinked. There are parallels that come up in the creation narrative that actually parallel the Exodus story. Okay, and it's not something that I'm just like making up. It's actually in the Hebrew words themselves that these links are there. So they link, and, and so when you read the Exodus narrative, it should remind you of the story of Genesis. And I wanna show you that in the scripture because it really is lurking behind John chapter six. 
Okay, so if you remember your, your uh, Old Testament, you know that the Exodus narrative basically begins with, uh, with Jacob going into Egypt. And there he is carrying the blessing of Genesis through the line of Abraham into exile. So now the, God's chosen people, the Hebrew people, are under Pharaoh, who is the most powerful person in all of the world at this time. But yet even as they are in an oppressive situation under Pharaoh, the Bible in Exodus 1-7 says this, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increasing in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, you see how the scripture is using some unique language there? That the land was filled with them is maybe not how you would tell the story if you weren't trying to remind people of the opening part of Genesis where it says this, uh, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see in Exodus, there's a fulfillment of this Genesis promise, okay? But what, what happens in the story, right? As the flourishing of the Hebrew people happens, Pharaoh is threatened, right? Pharaoh is uh, worried about this new immigrant group that is growing in number, and he feels economically threatened by them, and so he has to do something about it. And do you remember what he does well, I, I got some cheat sheet here, but what he does is he tries to make them work endlessly. He's trying to make them work, and he's trying to make their days bleed one into the next as if there was no differentiation. Because if they can work, 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 then they will not flourish. If he can capture their imagination and limit their imagination to work, 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 work all of the time, then they will not flourish and he can continue to oppress them. And we actually see that what Pharaoh is doing is parallel to the curse in Genesis. You remember after uh, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and they realize good and evil in the world, and now there's a curse that comes to them, and you remember what it is, it's about work. That they worked before in the garden, but they worked with God in harmony with God, but now outside of Eden, they are going to have to endure painful toil, and you can see Genesis 3.18 says, um, through painful toil, you will eat food from it and all the, all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Okay, so we see here that, that Exodus and what Pharaoh is trying to do is actually a, re, a, a parallel story, a hyperlink of what happened in Genesis this is where it's going to start to diverge, okay? Because there's a huge tension that happens in the story, right, between the God's people, the Hebrews, and Pharaoh, and the people are crying out, and God hears them, and Moses is called until we get to the point in the story where now Moses is going to go confront Pharaoh. 
And God actually gives Pharaoh nine warnings in these plagues. And all of these plagues, I only have three here, actually parallel the scripture in Genesis. And they they parallel the scripture in Genesis, but it's as if it's an undoing of creation. So watch this with me. So in Genesis 1, uh, 2 and 3, right, we see that the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and then God said, let there be light, right? This is the beginning of John. This is the beginning of Genesis. And yet in Exodus 10, 21, we see that during the plagues, that there was darkness over the land of Egypt, that there was a plague of darkness, and the only people that had light were who? The Hebrew people. Okay, and then another, a couple just to see this here. There was a plague of frogs, and these frogs were like nuisances, right? They were, they were all over the place. They were not welcome. They were almost like symbolic of death. And so in Exodus 7, 28, the Nile was swarming with frogs. But in Genesis 1.20, the waters were swarming with every living creature. So one is a picture of death and one is a picture of life. And we see that even more pronounced in the plague of the locusts here in Exodus 10.5. It says, the locusts will eat every tree with sprout, which sprouts from you from the field, right? So the locusts are there to devour the trees, to eat up all the goodness. But in Genesis 1:29, in the creation narrative, I have given you, uh, I have given you to you, I have given to you for food all vegetation, all the trees which has the fruit of the tree, every green thing. So there's this gift of the tree of life and the things of life, and then there's a taking away. And so it's as if God is warning Pharaoh by saying you are on a path towards undoing the goodness of creation itself. And I'm going to warn you nine, I'm going to give you nine choices to choose a different path, but we know the Egyptian people choose not to take that path. But let me show you how for the Hebrew people, they're moving to undo the curse of Genesis, right? So what was cursed in, in Genesis of the toil uh, that they would have to work so hard in order to just get the very little bit of sustenance that they need um, is now being undone through the Exodus narrative, right? In their oppression, their mindset is that they can only work, work, work to supply what they need. But God gives them a light. Genesis 1 again, that let there be light. But then in Exodus 13, 21, what does God give the Hebrew people? He gives them a cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night to lead them out into the place of the promised land. Where does he lead them? He leads them to the sea, to the Red Sea. And there what happens in the Red Sea, right? that just like in Genesis at the beginning, when land was made, when, when the waters were parted and land was made, there too in Exodus 14, 21, right, that Moses was there and he stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back 
by a strong east wind and made the sea into dry land. So it's the same movement of God from creation that he's now doing. And it's almost as like you imagine standing there like looking at this parting of the Red Sea and knowing this story about how God made the world and seeing how God was going to deliver you out of your oppression and into a new land. And you have this choice, like, am I going to walk through? Am I going to walk through these waters of new creation? And I say all of that to get us to this exodus, uh, this Passover concept that is lurking behind John chapter 6. This is what Exodus 12, 14 through 16, and then verse 34 and 39 say. This is what was taught to the Hebrew people about what the Exodus, uh, what the Passover festival should look like, excuse me. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day, And then see the key phrase here. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. So why does God command his people to not work? See, Pharaoh's tactic is to limit imagination by working, 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 And God is commanding his people to rest at the beginning of the year, right? Right at the onset of the Jewish calendar, the command is to not work and to only eat unleavened bread, which was the bread of readiness. Because it took a while for leaven to rise, and so unleavened bread was what the people of God, when they were being delivered, took with them because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And they're telling this story throughout generations and generations. What is the lesson that they're trying to teach? Well, that will bring us to John chapter 6 as we learn about the Passover and a new way for a new time when Jesus is now on the scene. And you remember uh, in the text we just read at the beginning that, that Jesus is testing the disciples. He is looking over at a crowd of hungry people and John tells us that to test the disciples, he tells them to feed this hungry crowd. And they know it's impossible. They know that there's no way that they can feed all of the people that are there. And we see this in their comments, right? John in particular says, I mean, excuse me, Philip in particular says, it would take more than half a year's wages 
to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And now the, these are my commentaries, but I think it's important for us to think about this comment in light of an Egypt mindset, in light of the Pharaoh mindset, in light of our mindset most of the time. That when God asks us to do something like this, that our mindset would be, what are you talking about? This is not how the world works. This is impossible to do, so why would you ask me to do it? Uh, it reminded me of a story that is one of the, the most uh, used children's stories in all of children's stories. It's called Alexander and the No Good, Very Bad, Horrible Day. Maybe you've heard of this story. Uh, I have been reading this story to my daughter on repeat over and over and over again, and I've been wondering why my five-year-old daughter, Glory, wants to hear this story. What is it about this story that resonates so deeply? And maybe you know the story, right? Alex, this is one children's book. A lot of children's books, right, have a, a real fun, happy ending and leave you feeling good at the end of it. Not Alexander, right? Alexander has a bad, one bad thing after another happened to him all the way throughout the story until at the end he just wants to move to Australia, right? Because nothing is good, right? He gets up and the... His siblings get the, the toy in the cereal box and he gets nothing and he complains about it. Uh, he gets in the car to go to school and he's squished in the back seat and he hates it and he complains about it. It's just one series of bad things after an next until at the end of it, uh, he has to wear the pajamas that he doesn't want to wear as he goes to bed at night. And there's something about this story that I think we can all acknowledge and I think that's why you know, Philip's answer is here because it gives the right context for our day-to-day -day reality. It says, yes, this is how we see and view things uh, in our way. And the thing you realize about Alexander is that, yes, bad things do happen to Alexander, but it's also some confirmation bias. Like he is interpreting all of the things that happen to him as bad things. And so they are, right? And so there's a scarcity mentality that says, there's only enough for me. And I need to toil and toil and toil in order to get enough for me. But what is the lesson that's being taught by Jesus in the story to the disciples as he commands them and finally Andrew, our namesake, at least goes and finds some bread and some fish from a little boy's lunch. And then Jesus takes it, blesses it, multiplies it, and gives it. And then we, we read here, he distributed to those who were steeded and they had as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish, as much as they wanted. 
this too is an echo of Genesis. You see, when, the, when on the seventh day, God rested, he entered into creation with Adam and Eve. And Sabbath wasn't just about not working, it was about being full. It was about being complete, being made whole. And so when Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, he's actually living into the more important spirit of the teaching on the Sabbath, which was a teaching about wholeness. And then the reason for the bread, the reason for why Jesus is providing bread in this miraculous way is to teach his disciples to learn how to eat again from the hand of God. That they needed to learn again how to practice living in the way of Eden. How to live in the way, in light of eternity, what God wanted for them. And that was the story of the wilderness, is that that God is teaching them again to learn how to rely on him and develop their identity. And so there's really two stories that are running, right? There's Pharaoh's story, and then there's Jesus' story. And I think we have to ask ourselves, which story are we living in? One last uh, illustration here for Eden that I think as we, we navigate the earth, we don't live in complete Eden, but there's ways in which we might take on an Eden mindset. Um, this is a picture of a guy named Dick Hoyt. Do we have that at the end here? Maybe some of you know this story. This is a popular story a while back. But uh, in 1962, Dick and Judy Hoyt gave birth to their son, Rick Hoyt. And during childbirth, Rick's umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, cutting off the supply of oxygen to his brain, and he was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. And the doctors advised Dick and Judy to institutionalize Rick because he was never going to be anything other than a vegetable. But Dick and Judy refused and brought Rick home to raise him like any other child. Rick told Dick when he was in high school that he wanted to compete in a five-mile running road race to help raise money for a high school lacrosse player who had been paralyzed in a recent accident. Dick, a non-runner at the time, pushed Rick for the full five miles, and they finished next to last, but not last. And later that night, Rick typed and he typed, he, he can move his head just slightly in order to communicate and type. He said, Dad, when I am running, I feel like I am not handicapped. And that's when it all started. Since that fateful day in 1977, Dick and Rick became known as Team Hoyt. And they finished 255 triathlons. 72 marathons, 95 half marathons, and a handful of various other distance runs. In 1996, they carried the Olympic torch. 
And in 1992, they ran and rode a bike from Santa Monica, California, to the Boston Harbor in 45 consecutive days. Now, I wonder what it would have been like if they had a pharaoh mindset. If they got the bad news that they had received and just seen it as the bad news that people get and resigned themselves to that. But thankfully, Dick was able to conjure up enough imagination and enough hope in order to see things in a totally new way, from a new perspective. One of the things that God is trying to teach his people is to redeem their imagination, to redeem our imagination, to show us that with God, there are way more options than the ones that we thought or came up with ourselves. And so because sometimes we just have no good, awful, terrible days, and that's okay, and I'm with Glory Rose and saying sometimes you just chalk it up to a loss and you go to bed. But we cannot live there every day. We must live into this new story that says that our time is sacred and meaningful and purposeful and that God can provide for us no matter what is going on in our lives. So my prayer for you is that you would feel the deep purpose of all of your days, knowing that God is there to provide for you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that like you multiplied the bread on that day, that you would take the little offerings that we have, Lord, as we bring them unto you. And Lord, even in the spirit of doubt and dismay, that you would take it and multiply it and show us again that you are with us and that you are the great provider and with you we have nothing to worry about. Lord, would you fill us this day with true rest, knowing that you're the one who brings fulfillment to our souls. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.